You're listening to Christ is King, all of Him in all of life, from Rivertown Church in Brattleboro, Vermont. This podcast is part of our ongoing mission to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. For more information, visit rivertownchurch.org. May the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Word. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, we are continuing in our series called Christ is King. We've been talking about the preeminence of Christ in all of life, that He created everything and all things exist through Jesus and for Jesus. Uh, Two weeks ago, we talked about how Christ is King over our members, over the members of our bodies and We've been bought with the price, and so all we are belongs to him. Last week, David talked to us about our moments, our time, that all of time is a gift, and it's his to be returned back to him. And today, we're talking about Christ being king over our money. Now, I just said money in church, and depending on your experience with preachers who either loved money or your love of money, either way, mentioning money from here has the tendency to cause everybody to kind of be like, ooh, I could have slept in today. Uh, So I want to have as a banner over our time, I want you to know that I am coming pastorally to you, and this has been my prayer for us, for all of us. I'm, I'm coming as a fellow disciple, and Paul writes in Philippians 4, Verse 17, he says, not that I seek the gift itself. I seek your spiritual profitability. I want for us to be righteous in all of life, to be obedient to Jesus in all of life, not just in parts of our life that we're fine with him having lordship over, but the parts of our lives that we're tempted to shield from his lordship in all the nooks and crannies of actual life. 15% of Christ's teachings related to money, which is more than his recorded teachings on heaven and hell combined. So it is important. And in a book I commend to you called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn, I know some of you have read that. He said, why such an emphasis on money and possessions? Because there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money which we are going to dive into and will make more sense as we go. But we have great need of us as a church to pray and ask God, God, humble our hearts. You know, you can search and try my heart. You know where I'm tempted to love stuff or to trust stuff instead of trusting you, where I'm tempted to put up a guard to protect parts of my life from you. We need God to search and try us and to humble us before his living word and to make us open to what he has for us today. So I'm going to pray for us to that end, and then we are going to dive into Luke chapter 16. Father, you are the God of all things. All things are yours, and we are your servants. And we want to be faithful servants. We are not our own. We've been bought with the price. All that we are and all that we have belongs to you. So would you come and search us and try us? Lord, whatever's in us that feels awkward or weird or self-protective when money is brought up, uh, Lord, would you crucify that and make us a gladly surrendered people? In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 16, uh, verse 10. Jesus has just finished telling a parable that we're not diving into in detail, but it is about a steward who was wasting his master's possessions. He actually ends up being shrewd and crafty with kind of a human dealing with money. And Jesus talks about how the sons of this world are more shrewd than sons of light when it comes to investing uh, earthly resources. But you need to be wise in the use of earthly resources in order to secure eternal blessing. That's, that's the point of the parable, is using earthly money to secure eternal blessing. And then in verse 10, he says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful 
in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give to you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So, we're going to walk through these three verses. We're going to camp out in one in particular. But the first thing I want us to see from this text is that we are stewards, not owners. When we talk about earthly money and the things that we have in life, the money, material possessions, any wealth that you have belongs to God and has been entrusted to you as a steward. And you can see this language specifically in, this three, in these three or four verses in two real ways. One is in verse 12, he says, if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will entrust to you what is your own? And that which is another's is directly correlating to verse 11 when he says unrighteous wealth. He's talking about earthly wealth, earthly possessions. That is that which is another's. It doesn't belong to us. He could have left it at, if you're not faithful in earthly wealth, then who will entrust to you true riches? But he doesn't say it that way. He's driving home the fact that it belongs to him. Everything that you have, everything that you own belongs to Jesus. You can get real specific. Your car belongs to Jesus. Your savings account belongs to Jesus. Your 401k or lack of it belongs to Jesus. The money that you have set aside for home projects belongs to Jesus. The money that you put aside for family vacation belongs to Jesus. It all belongs to him. In the preceding parable in verse 1, he prefaces the whole thing by saying there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. In that parable, God is the rich man, you are the manager, and the manager is wasting God's possessions. And so Jesus is using this parable to highlight and to drive home, you are a manager, you are a steward, and you are called to faithfulness in that which belongs to God. In Psalm 24, verse 1, the psalmist says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So this morning when we say Christ is king over our money, we got to have those scare quotes when we say our money because what we really mean is Christ is king over his money that he has entrusted to us. That's the language of this series and really in all of life. Christ is king over our members which is to say Christ is king over his members of our bodies. We've been bought with the price, and so we're called to glorify Christ with our bodies. Christ is king over our time. It's really his time. He's giving it to us as a gift, and we need to make a return on it for him, redeeming the time for the days are evil. And today we're talking about glorifying Christ with his money. The second way you see this in this text is the language of faithfulness. Nobody talks about being faithful to themselves. It's faithfulness comes with the idea of being trustworthy or being loyal to somebody. So if we're called to be faithful with money, it's faithfulness with regards to that which is somebody else's. And so uh, Paul uses this language in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2. It's required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithfulness, trustworthiness is the language of stewardship, not of ownership and stewardship is not a matter of deciding how much of God's money we're going to entrust to him, but recognizing that he is the master over everything we are and have, and that we are called to manage his money as he directs us. Now, in that book, The Treasure Principle, which is short, I know sometimes if I recommend a book, you guys might, you, you might be thinking of a book that's this big. It's like this big, and you should get it and read it. It's very helpful. But he uses an illustration of a FedEx delivery driver. That's you. 
You're not the guy who sent the, sent the package. You're the driver. God owns the goods. He owns the money. And he has handed it to you to deliver it and to do with it as he has directed you. Now, if the example of a FedEx driver or USPS or whatever you want, if that gets lost on you, you can think about it this way. Suppose I sent one of my sons to the store and I gave him $100 and I said, I want you to buy these groceries for our family and then you're welcome to use X amount of this money on yourself and then I want you to save some of this and I gave him very specific instructions. Now suppose he goes to the store and all of a sudden he doesn't even make it past the checkout aisle. He's walking backwards and he just sees Snickers and gum and all sorts of things and he's like, I'm doing it up. Look, I got a hundred bucks. Now, he's not following his father's direction, and I gave him the money for a very specific purpose. In the midst of being directed to do what I told him to do, he got it twisted that the money belonged to me, and all of a sudden started acting like the money belonged to him, and that he could do with it as he sees fit. Do you think I would be pleased if he came back and said, I did with 10% of your money what you wanted me to do with it, but the rest of it I thought you would be understanding. It belonged to me. The way that we live in life tells what we truly believe about who owns money, who owns our lives, who's the Lord and master of our life. So that's the first thing we see here. We are, we are stewards of all of life, but in this specific context, we're talking about money and wealth and possessions. You are not an owner. Point two, how you steward earthly wealth here directly affects owning real treasure here and there. Now, Jesus uses this language, if you haven't been faithful in very little. And the, the adjectives, the language is like, this is like the least thing. This is like the lowest thing. If you haven't been faithful in this very least, tiny, smallest, does not valuable thing at all, then who is going to trust you with, and the language is the truth, what is real. If you haven't been faithful with monopoly money, then who's going to entrust you with what is real and lasting? Now I want to take that example of the Monopoly money a, a little further. I want you to imagine that you and I were playing a round of Monopoly, but we were playing an adult version of it, and maybe one that didn't last three hours. And we were thinking, you get dealt all this money, but there's a twist to the game. Whatever you don't spend in the game, you get to convert to real money at a hundred times or a thousand times rate. Now, the other twist of the game is that you could also use the money for snacks and other practical goods while you're playing the game. Now, if we were just being wise and smart, you're not going to be sitting there thinking, so real practical, if you take this Monopoly money and put it aside, it's going to pay for a kid's college, or you can use it to buy a Snickers while you're playing. Y'all may think, I've mentioned Snickers twice. Y'all are getting real hungry. Relax. Now, you would be a fool to be like, I'm, I know that education is important and a 401k is important, but I am starving, so I'm going here. Right? Nobody would do that. So then it just becomes a matter of faith. Do we really believe what God has said to be true with unrighteous wealth versus Real riches, real, true wealth. The enemy wants to deceive us into thinking like an owner now so you have no true riches now and later. So we think about true riches. We're thinking about spiritual blessings, the promises of God, actual faith, hope, love here and now, the enjoyment of Christ here and now. But we're also talking about in the age to come, riches that we can't even fathom. It's not just all gold harps and singing uh, a monotonous worship song. We're talking about heaven that is far beyond your wildest imagination and him entrusting to you rule and ownership and stewardship and authority in eternal life 
and real reward. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal or where inflation eats it away or gas prices at $4 a gallon. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven, true riches, where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So as we talk about being faithful in little, or being faithful with unrighteous wealth, and that, that term unrighteous wealth, it's like a, seems to me like a play on words because the word can mean unjust, like it's, it's unrighteous, it's used for unrighteous ends. You can't achieve righteousness with it, but it's also a word that represents idolatry. So it, it's, it's this wealth that has such the tendency to grab hold of our hearts and lead us away from a true trust in God and a true worship of God. And he's saying, if you're not faithful with the monopoly money and it leads you into all kinds of idolatry, then who's going to entrust to you true heavenly riches? You ought to not store up unrighteous wealth. If you do, then your heart will follow it. Your heart is going to follow your money. And I know it seems like it might work the other way around, but you can, it's kind of intuitive, right? If I invest in some stock, right? I invest in Domino's Pizza. All of a sudden, my family's probably not eating pizza anymore or other places, right? My heart, I'm going to be interested in reading what's going on with Domino's. I'm going to be checking the news. If I give towards Compassion International, towards supporting a child, all of a sudden we're going to get updates on this child. We're going to pray over this kid with our family. Your heart and your interests and your desires follow where you're investing your money. So one of the ways that we can be faithful with unrighteous wealth is through lavish generosity into the kingdom of God, not stockpiling wealth and possessions for ourselves that land like, landlock our heart and our minds here on the things below, but rather investing generously into the kingdom of God and into the needs of others so that I can glorify Christ with what he's entrusted to me. This verse in Luke 16 is pointing to a deeper underlying truth because people that trust in Christ are going to be entrusted with true riches, real and lasting treasure. So really what we're talking about is faithfulness with regards to the dealings with unrighteous wealth, with earthly money, comes down to faith. It comes down to truly trusting God and living in the overflow of valuing Christ more than we value everything else. We cannot earn our way to true riches through faithful stewardship, right? We know that. Our our way to the Father is through Christ, by grace, through faith alone. It's a gift from God. It's not something that you can earn through faithful financial stewardship. But if you're not faithful with earthly wealth, it betrays a heart that doesn't trust God. I want to show you this connection. Earthly money represents comfort. It represents control. And it represents what's temporal, Right? If we have money, we feel like we can pursue the things that will make us life more tolerable or life more comfortable or some of the things that we've wanted. It also is an illusion of control because we feel like if we have X amount in the bank account, we kind of have some breathing room. We can relax a little bit. Some of our anxieties go down, but it's all an illusion. Right now, the value of your bank account is being driven by a madman half a world away. You could wake up tomorrow and your bank account reads exactly the same number and those dollars don't do as much as they did. Money gets wings, the writer of Proverbs says, and flies away. But money, how we think about money, stands in stark contrast to God calling us to deny ourselves, not pursue our comforts, and to trust him, not trust in the illusion of control, and to fix our hearts and our minds on the things above, not on the things that are temporal, the things that money can buy us. 
And you can see this connection very clearly in Proverbs chapter 3. There's a famous couple of verses that you have likely heard before in verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Now, same chapter, drop down a couple of verses. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Giving to the Lord first is an act of faith and an act of worship. If I see in my life all these needs and all the ways where I have this illusion of control that I'm going to meet these things and I'm going to provide for myself, or if I see needs and I don't have the provision from what I can see, and I go out and labor and toil and do things that are disobedient to God so that I can come and meet these needs, I am operating in unbelief. Like I meet my needs and I provide for myself rather than seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and let everything else be added to you. So giving to the Lord is first an act of faith and it's an act of worship. We give to the Lord the first fruits of what we receive. First fruits is a reference to giving to the Lord first, not with what's left over. I give to the Lord out of what he's entrusted to me first, not because the balance belongs to me, but because it's a, it's a sign of good faith. God, I know that all of this belongs to you. I want to honor that and express faith in you, in your goodness and in your provision by giving to you first because I trust you. It's an acknowledgement that all is from him and to him and for him. And we give as an expression of the truth that God, not money, is our God. And everything that we have is from him and it belongs to him and that he's our strength, he's our provision, not money, not our wisdom, not our know-how. Some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Sounds real spiritual out there, but when it comes to the grind and the bills and the payments and the plans and the future, well, man, I kind of do trust in money a little bit. So I want to, as kind of an aside, but I think an important one, offer to you tithing as a ground floor of worship, not as a law, all right, so this is me proposing this to you. In the Old Testament, giving a 10% tithe was a requirement on every Israelite, a requirement. And on top of that, they were called to offer glad freewill offerings. And when God was moving among his people, they were rebuilding the temple, they had to hold the people back from gladly giving of themselves over and above what was required of them because of the joy that they had in God. Jesus affirms the tithe in Matthew 23 when he tells the religious leaders, you tithe of all these different mint, uh, spices and garden herbs. This you ought to have done without neglecting the weightier provisions of the law. So he affirms it for the Jews. But after that point, it's not mandated in the New Testament beyond that. You won't see it in the writings of Paul. Give to the Lord 10% of your income. Because it's not. You've been set free in the new covenant as a son of God to give gladly and generously, not out of compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. And so many Christians have rejected tithing out of hand as legalism and instead hold to what we would call grace giving. But some would interpret grace giving as no giving. But what I want to propose to you, and, and some of this language may come from Treasure Principle. I read it again this week, and it's very helpful. But I think this is the question you have to ask yourself. With Jesus raising the bar everywhere else, with him saying, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, if you've hated your brother in your heart, you've committed the same sin. Or you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But if you've looked at a woman lustfully in your heart, then you've committed the sin of adultery by a different degree. Okay. So if they commanded the poorest Israelite, 
if God commanded the poorest Israelite to give 10%, then would it make sense that we, who've been set free and given the, the gladness and the joy of life in Christ, who live in the most affluent society that's ever existed, would it make sense that he would have a lower expectation for us rather than a greater one? Or that we wouldn't want to give, we wouldn't want to be more generous out of opportunity and privilege than Israel had to be by law? Yet a recent study by church development found that only 5% of churchgoers give 10% or more of their income away. Now, this is not a rule, but if we're, grace giving means we're free to give as God directs us. We're the FedEx driver and he's directing us. And I think all of us would have a hard time believing that God wants 95% of his people to give less than what he required Israel to give in the old covenant. So I think what this really shows is we've got about 95% of the church that doesn't really believe that it belongs to God and that we are stewards to do with as he directs us. Now, could he be directing people to give less than 10% away? Yeah, for sure. Is he directing 95% of his people to give less than 10% away? I just have a hard time believing that. If every Christian tithe, the kingdom of God would see about $140 billion more in investment a year. And helping to lead a church and helping to lead ministries, I see the need for radical generosity that we see all over the New Testament where you see people, I mean, Pentecost, God pours out the Spirit and people are selling stuff to come and contribute to the needs of the poor. They're, they're selling and giving of their own accord, gladly sharing with each other. And this is what you see all over the New Testament. It's this glad, like, we've been set free. Money's not our God anymore. Jesus is our God. And now we just want to help meet needs and we want to plant churches. We want to make disciples. So this is my main point here. We must not use grace as a license for sin or as a shield for loving money or a lack of trust in God. So because of how privatized money can be and because Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing and we won't want to talk about giving, then there's not the example of one another to hold each other to. Like, let's love God with all of our hearts and not love money. Let's not trust money. Let's trust God. But I can't talk to you about that because this needs to be in secret because I don't want you to know about it. But secretly, we've created a safe space where I can just completely dishonor God with all of my possessions and not trust them with the most practical part of my life and nobody has to know about it. And then we can say, but he understands because God is gracious and that is true. He is gracious, but he gives us grace for obedience, not for sin, not to shield something that we love more than him. So when we talk about giving God 10% as the first fruits of generosity, like I said before, it's not like the other 90% belongs to us. It's just the best foot forward. It's just saying, God, I trust you with everything. If you want to take 90% of this, then take 90% of it. It's, just, it's yours. So I'm the FedEx driver. So I'm proposing a tie to you this morning, not as a rule that's legally binding on New Covenant believers, but as a helpful ground floor of worship. I thought about calling it tithing as warfare because we have to fight in us everything that is greed and covetousness. There's all these sins. Listen to the Bible and he's saying, Watch, put to death sexual immorality and this and this. And he gets to covetousness and he says, which is idolatry? It's the only one. Now it's all idolatry, but he's pointing out, look, your want of all this worldly stuff betrays a lack of trust in your heavenly father who knows what you need. And it gets its tentacles on your heart and leads your worship away. It can cause shipwreck to your faith if it goes unchecked and uncrucified. And so I'm proposing having some, you guys pray about it, seek the Lord on it, have community that speaks into it so it's not just your own personal private decision because our hearts are so prone to self-deception. And then give to the Lord some first fruits, some kind of like, you 
taxes come out of your check, and so does some amount of first fruits to the Lord. So you're not giving to him the leftovers, and we're not guilty of robbing God of what belongs to him. That's the language that's used in Malachi chapter 1 and in Malachi chapter 3. I'm not going to read chapter 1. Chapter 1 really talks about people coming and serving God leftovers. They had flocks, and they would have healthy sheep and sheep that had lame legs. And which ones do you think they offered to God as a sacrifice? He understands. I need these to plow my field with. We need these healthy ones. If we keep the lame ones, then they, maybe they're going to have more diseased sheep. So let's just give God the diseased offering because he understands. And God confronts them for offering to him their leftovers and then and saving the best for themselves. And then in chapter 3, this is the part we're going to read together. The Lord says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you were not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Uh, don't miss this question. They're saying, God, we haven't gone anywhere. What are you talking about? They had no idea that they had left the Lord. And so they're literally saying, God, what are you talking about? He says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. That is shocking. Now listen, prosperity preachers have done massive damage in leading people away and using verses like this to satisfy their own greed, to help people foster more love of money. Hey, if you give then God will give you more of what you love more than him. But people that are seeking to err on the other side make too little of a text like this. God is literally calling us and saying, test me. I want you to try me. I dare you to trust me, to give to me first and to seek me first and see if you can outgive me. Trust me and see if you have any more need. Trust me and see if your joy is not full when you give yourself away. We don't give to get wealth. We give to please God. And God loves to bless his people who honor him. Will it always be with materials, material wealth and money? No. In fact, probably not usually. But he will give you what you need, and he will give you the secret and joy of contentment. Paul says it like this, God multiplies seed to the sower. It's like a picture of us having one, like a freshly aerated field, and we're seeding it with one of those spreaders. And God is looking and seeing who's got the latch open. Those who are spreading seed, he pours more seed into their bag, into their bucket. And those who have it closed because they want to make sure that they have enough and they're thinking first about their own provision of themselves, he lets them have what they've kept for themselves. But who ends up having more seed? Those who are holding it down and spreading it freely or those who are making sure that they have enough for themselves? Oftentimes you hear of people waiting to give until they're in a better position to give. But so often people wait in vain because those who are faithful in little will be faithful with much. But if you're not faithful in little, then why would God entrust you with more to be unfaithful in? If you've been practicing idolatry with little, why would he entrust you with more so that you can continue your idolatry with greater magnitude? You might not have opportunity to be faithful in much if you're not faithful in little. In Haggai 1, this was exactly what happened to them. They were... Uh, spending all of themselves and their money on repairing their own houses while God's house went neglected. God said, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. 
because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. This is God loving them. God is loving them because he, if in love for you, will not allow you to value something more than him without taking it away. And if he does let you continue to enjoy something more than him or to worship something more than him, that is not love. That is judgment. That is God giving you over to your own desires. And he won't do that for his people. So it's required of us that we be found faithful. If we're faithful with little, he'll entrust with us what is real and what is true and what is lasting. You cannot take fake money with you, but you can convert it to what is immortal and lasting by giving it to God and giving it to people. That's what A.W. Tozer said, whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. If you're not faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Third, from our Luke 16 text, you cannot serve God and money. This is why Jesus teaches on it so much. This is why the enemy uses it so much to lead true worship away because You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot love both God and money. You cannot trust both God and money. And this is this is the Son of God saying this is what you it cannot happen. So that means it's not possible. You cannot love and serve both God and money. You can see this, I'll give you a few examples. You can see this with the nation of Israel. This is true throughout their history. Most of the time when you see Israel giving themselves to idolatry, it's not like they've just completely rejected the form of worship of God for idolatry. They keep the traditions in the form of worship and they bring idolatry into it. And so the rituals stay, but their hearts are gone. And our legalistic hearts love rules, all of us. And they can be so deceptive I don't think there's any of us in the room that don't know what it's like to give God what he thinks that we want of us, what he wants of us, hoping that it's enough to kind of mollify him and his anger or to assuage our conscience. And we think like, hopefully that that's, that's good without really prayerfully listening to him and doing as he directs. And we can look around us, the people around us and think, well, he's, he's got to be happy with what I gave him. I mean, look at everybody else. So, and after all, he understands. But he doesn't delight in sacrifices, beloved. He delights in obedience. We see this all throughout. Saul offering the sacrifices, and Samuel comes to him and says, does God delight in sacrifices as much as in obedience? If we give to him out of our plenty, but we don't give obediently, does that honor God? Is it pleasing to him? What he wants from us is our hearts and obedience, not, man, this was a convicting message on money, so I'm going to, like, give to kind of get God off my back, and then I'm going to go on and forget about this, instead of a life change, a heart change. I think if Joshua was here, he would call us and say, all right, church, you choose who today you will serve. You can't choose God and money, so I want you to make a choice. And the choice that he gives to the children of Israel is, will you worship money or will you worship possessions? And we say, wait, what? No, 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 we're, we're going to worship Jesus. And he goes, no, no, you won't be able to. He demands everything of you. This is the language. He gives them two options. He gives them two false gods. They're so offended. They say, I'm going to worship Jesus. They say, oh, you won't be able to. And they say, no, no, we will. We'll make a covenant together today. We, choo- we will choose to worship God this day. And nobody from that generation walked away. They all worshiped God faithfully. You have to choose. We could choose today to renounce money's hold on us and on our loves and on our trust and on our affections and choose for ourselves, hey, let's make a covenant together today. We, we will not worship money. I, I will fight for you. I will get in the trenches with you and I will help you to keep money's tentacles off of your life so that it doesn't make shipwreck of your faith. Like it did with Judas, another example. 
Following Jesus while loving money more than him is like betrayal with a kiss. It looks like worship and in the end is betrayal. And this was what Judas's plight was. He loved money. And in the end, it led to the greatest betrayal of all time and him betraying the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver and his own destruction. He could not worship God and money. The Pharisees drew near with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. And where were their hearts? The very next verse in Luke 16 says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. That's why Jesus is teaching on money and being faithful with it because it's a heart issue. You can project righteousness before men and seek to justify yourself that you're doing enough to please God. But in the end, it all comes down to, are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Have you placed your trust in Christ? And is Jesus working in you a new heart, conforming you to his image, giving you his generosity. And it becomes evident that you love God and not money. And if not, God knows our hearts. He knows the ways that we're prone to self-deception, to excuse ourselves. And the last example here is the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler had many possessions and Jesus made him choose. And he walked away from the treasure of heaven, sad. He could not serve God in money. He couldn't let go of his treasures to receive Christ, who is the treasure of heaven. He had too much stuff. Jesus turns to his disciples and said, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But it is possible with God. It is possible for him to change our hearts and to free us up for a true worship of Christ. So I'd like to close by briefly giving you a snapshot of what it looks like when we're serving God alone and living as faithful stewards. So I'm flying through these. I put these up here. It's going to look like a lot just so that if you're a note taker, you can jot notes. Or if you have your camera out, you can take a picture and you can go study these passages later. But if we talk about faithful stewardship, we got to have targets that we're aiming at. Otherwise, we're just going to be like, oh yeah, that's, that's good. I'm going to be faithful. And then we'll aim, if you aim at nothing, you're going to hit it. And so what will it look like for Jesus to grow us in godliness and faithful stewards as those who recognize Jesus is king over his money in my life. So uh, first, the grace of God will work in us to make us gladly generous like Christ. Gladly generous. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul goes into this in detail. You should go read those chapters. But in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, Paul writes, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And he leaves us an example to follow, so that we would deny ourselves and sacrifice of ourselves so that other people could know and enjoy him. And so in this text, Paul commends the Corinthian church because even though they were super poor, like poorer than the poorest like nowhere in the U.S. poor, like really poor. And they were begging for an opportunity to take part in a contribution for the saints because God had worked grace in their hearts. It was a gift. Generosity in the Corinthian church was a gift from God. And Paul said that the result was many thanksgivings to God and God being glorified as people saw God in this church. We'll believe Christ and agree with him that it's truly more blessed to give than to receive. Our actions will oftentimes show that we don't really believe that. We've experienced the joy of giving, but how often we forget and get amnesia and get focused on ourselves and our own lives and our own provision. And Jesus says, it is more blessed of God for you to give than to receive. We'll give up what's costly here for the greatest treasure. You can look at Paul, Philippians 3, talking about whatever things were gained to him, he counted as lost for the sake of knowing Christ, the greatest treasure, or the woman who broke open the alabaster jar of great, worth a year's worth of wages and showered them on Jesus' feet because she had found a greater treasure. Or in Matthew 13, the man who finds the treasure hidden in the field and he gives up all that he has for the sake of the treasure. So we give to acknowledge we have found something of greater value. 
will value treasure that lasts and does not wear out. So you think about the classic example of life being a dot and eternity being a line and saying, we're going to live for the line and for the treasure that's real and lasting, not for the monopoly game that's right here, right now. Well, heed Jesus' words to take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We'll reject worry and anxious, self-dependent toil as we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. This one's huge. I have a little star by it in my notes because this gets us, right? The needs start to grow. The practical situations start to pile up. And all of a sudden, we start to worry and get anxious and we become unfaithful in these other matters that Jesus has called us to. Instead of, I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God. Bills and other things pile up. I'm not going to stop giving the first fruits of what God's called me to trust him with because I trust him. And he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and he'll add all these things and that he knows what we need. And so I'm going to continue to give. I'm going to continue to gather and worship. I'm going to continue to be faithful in life instead of toiling anxiously because at the end of the day, we've never provided for one of our needs. God has. And he's used means to. We'll learn the secret of contentment in Christ and gain the ability to enjoy God's blessings without worshiping the blessings themselves. I have another star next to this one. This is very big. We fall into two ditches, right? Paul says, I know how to have much and little. He doesn't know how to only have little, and he doesn't live some ascetic life where he doesn't know how to have much or to enjoy the good gifts of God. But we need to be able to enjoy God's blessings without abandoning the giver for the gift. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them, this is all of us in America right now, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Enjoy it, work for it, be blessed by God and obey him. Don't let the blessings distract you or detract you away from the giver. Superior love for God and knowledge of his presence with us will keep us from a love of money that could cause shipwreck to our faith. Paul warns against this. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evils, and some, by wandering away after it, have caused shipwreck to their faith. But the writer of Hebrews tells us, God has promised you, I will never leave you or forsake you. So therefore, free your life of a love of money. What do I need to love money for when I have God with me and for me? And lastly, we'll be generous and ready to share. In that same passage from 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes to Timothy, these rich are to do good, to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So here's these exhortations for us, beloved, from all over Scripture. Jesus left heaven and the riches of heaven to our poverty so that we could know him and he could bring us everlastingly into the true riches of his presence forever. And so he calls us to live faithfully here as stewards with the very, very little minuscule value earthly money so that he can entrust you true riches. He gives you gifts to enjoy here, but not to be enjoyed above him. And he, he calls us, church, be generous and ready to share. The church must be ready to meet pressing needs. Don't worry about your life. Your heavenly father knows what you need. Trust him with the first fruits of all that you are and with all of life besides, the first fruits and all of it. Let's trust him and let's worship him and let's use money for the glory of Christ as we seek to be faithful stewards. I'm gonna pray for us and then we're going to head into communion. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, for the flashing warning sign of your word, for when our hearts are going the wrong way or when we have 
gotten distracted, when money may have enticed us away into a heart of materialism, a heart that's earthly-minded. Lord Jesus, we want to repent. There's, I can't imagine that there's anyone in the room who's completely free of this, who's been completely faithful in this. But this is our confidence and our hope. You loved and served God perfectly and went to the cross so that we would not be condemned by our hearts coveting or being idolatrous and going astray. And so we get to come to the table to worship and remember Christ who gave himself. You so loved the world that you gave yourself so that whoever would believe in you would not perish but have eternal life. I pray for any who can hear the sound of my voice in this room or online that have yet to place their trust in Christ. Even this look today at your ownership of all of life reveals to them that they've never truly placed their trust in Christ, that Christ has never truly become the king of their life. I pray that today would be the day that they turn from their sin and place their trust in a Savior who loved us and gave himself up for us so that we could have life in your name. Lord, for other brothers and sisters, I pray that right now we would ask you to come and search and try our hearts. Where we've been robbing you, where we've been shielding ourselves from you, any parts of our life today could just show them some other part of their life where we're not fearing you or where we're shielding some part of our life from your lordship. God, convict us. Lead us to repentance. Give us the grace to trust you in all of life and to have, specifically in this case, our money go where our mouth is. For us to actually demonstrate through works of righteousness and through lavish generosity that Christ is our King and our treasure, and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.